0: If you're a guest with us, uh, we are preaching through the fall feasts. We decided to do that. We, we did, um, because it actually fits on the calendar where we're at right now. So if you recall, what we did is a couple weeks ago, we preached a message on the Feast of Trumpets because that was happening like at sundown that Sunday. And then we, last week, did one on Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement. And that happened actually Wednesday, um, sundown Tuesday night to sundown Wednesday this past week. Now, Uh, Today we're going to talk about the last feast on Israel's calendar for the year. It's called the Feast of Booths, or the Feast of Sukkot, or sometimes uh, the Feast of Tabernacles. Okay, Uh, Different words, different names are used for it sometimes. And what happens is this. At sundown tonight, this is when this actually on our calendar is when that's supposed to start, and it goes for seven days. And um, we're going to talk about it today because this... All around, like if you were to jump on a plane and decide to vacation in Israel, you would go to Israel today and see many of these booths made. I mean, sometimes um, people have them, you know, uh, know, if they have an apartment, they have it um, on their patio porch, just everywhere they can put it, at synagogues, all over, and it means something, and it points towards something. So I'm excited to share with you about that. Let's do this. Before we get into it, I want to read about the Feast of Booths and this festival, and and how it pertains to Christ and why we're even talking about it this time. And I have to say, for me personally, of all um, of our fall feasts, I think this one um, I probably knew the least about, like naturally coming in, as far as I, I don't think I'd research this one as much as I've researched Well, something's shut off, and now something's turned on. Yeah, probably. Um, so I would say this. I'm pretty excited to talk to you about this message because um, it it brings joy. It really does. Okay, do this. I want to show you a couple passages of scripture where this is talked about. If you'll grab your Bible and go to Leviticus chapter twenty-three. Leviticus chapter twenty-three. Leviticus chapter twenty-three. If you'll stand to your feet and we're gonna look at Leviticus chapter twenty-three. We're going to be in verse 33, Leviticus chapter 23 and verse 33. This is the this is the Old Testament feast of booths or feast of tabernacles. By the way, let me just tell you, if you're a guest, we're trying to preach through this because it's really hard to read. You know, when you start reading through the Bible, you get to Leviticus, you kind of stop and like, what is this all about? So the hope is now when you actually read Leviticus, you'll actually know, like, what is this about? I'm hoping, if you're a guest with us and you don't have much Bible background knowledge, this may be a hard message, but if you'll hang in there, I think the Lord will have something for you. I'm going to try to kind of put it it to where it's understandable, but man, the the Lord is doing some great things through this feast, and it points us towards Jesus. Verse 33. So this is the seventh, the last feast on Israel's calendar, and it says this. And the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to the people of Israel, saying, On the fifteenth day of the seven month, for seven days is the Feast of Booths to the Lord. On the first day shall be a holy convocation, which means the people will gather on the first day the Feast of Booths. You shall not do any ordinary work. For seven days you shall present food offerings to the Lord. On the eighth day you shall hold a holy convocation, a, convocation, a gathering and assembly again of God's people. You shall present a food offering to the Lord. It is a solemn assembly. You shall not do any ordinary work. So we have the Feast of Booth. The first day you take off work. The last day, the eighth day, you take off work. For seven days, you live in a booth. And you do offerings each of those days. Thanksgiving offerings. Verse 37. Burnt offerings. All sorts of different types of offerings. Verse 37. And the appointed feasts of the Lord, which shall proclaim at times of holy convocation... For presenting to the Lord food offerings, burnt offerings, grain offerings, sacrifices, and drink offerings, each on its proper day. Besides the Lord's Sabbaths, and besides your gift, and besides all your vow offerings, besides all your free will offerings which you give to the Lord. On the 15th day of the seventh month, which is, which, which is the month we're in, when you have gathered on the Jewish calendar, have gathered in the produce of the land, you shall celebrate the feast of the Lord seven days. On the seventh day shall be a solemn rest, and on uh, and the first day shall be a solemn rest, and the eighth day shall be a solemn rest. So let me just ask you, what days are you supposed to rest? The first and the eighth, right? Hold that in in, in the memory bank. And you shall take on the first day the fruits of splendid trees, the fruits of splendid tree. When we leave here and we go out to this booth that Beoman is is he's built his booth his his uh sukkah in the parking lot. He's gonna. You're gonna see uh, a piece of fruit in his hand, which is symbolized by this fruit of a splendid tree, a branch of palms, boss of leafy trees, and willows of brook. You're gonna see those three, those four elements in his hand, and he's gonna use those and do those as kind of a celebration before the Lord that the rabbis have kind of designed um, how to use this particular thing. When God mentions this, when Moses mentions this, how to use these four organic elements uh, in a booth. The rabbis have designed it so he's going to kind of wave these before the Lord and show you um, what the kind of symbolism behind it. It's going to be cool. He's going to let your kids kind of grab these elements and wave them as well and talk about what the Lord's doing. Verse 41. You shall celebrate as a feast of the Lord for seven days in the year. It is a statue forever throughout your generations. You shall celebrate it in the seventh month. You shall dwell in booths for seven days. All native Israelites shall dwell in booths. And your generation shall know that I made the people of Israel dwell in booths. When I brought them out of the land of Egypt, I am the Lord your God. Thus Moses declared to the people of Israel the appointed feasts of the Lord. So they did this. One of the things was the memorial of when they were wandering in the wilderness for 40 days. They lived in booths or tents. Now do this. Go over to Deuteronomy chapter 16, just so you see another place. What a great Sunday to not go on fall break, right? Reading Deuteronomy and Leviticus. Deuteronomy sixteen, thirteen: You shall keep the Feast of Booth seven days when you have gathered in the produce from the threshing floor and your wine presses. You'll see this in a minute. The Feast of Booth is also the last the last harvest. You shall rejoice in your feast. You and your sons and your daughter, your male servants, your female servants, the Levite, the sojourner, the fatherless, the widow who are within your towns. For seven days you shall keep the feast to the Lord your God at the place the Lord will choose, because the Lord your God will bless you in all your produce, in all the work of your hands, so you will be altogether joyful. Three times a year all your mail shall appear before the Lord your God at the place that he will choose at the Feast of Unleavened Bread, the Feast of Weeks, and the Feast of booths. Would you pray with me? Let us today worship you, Christ. Let us see in this in this particular feast, you let it wet wet our whistle for the kingdom of God. Let us let it open our hearts to what's happening in the scriptures as you even did some pivotal work during this feast. Let it let our souls be enthused for your word and for the nations to come to you as we study this feast in Jesus' name. God, people said. Okay. So you should have an outline. I got eight things. The title of this message is eight things to know about the Feast of Booths or the Feast of Tabernacles, okay? Or Sukkot, okay? That word Sukkot, you might hear us say that. It just means booth. Also, this feast is sometimes called the Feast of Engathering because it was when you gather the final harvest, the grape harvest, the fruit harvest. It's also called the Feast of Dwelling because. You're actually dwelling, Israelites would dwell in these booths, these temporary shelters for seven days. It's also sometimes called the Feast of Nations because Zechariah 14 has a prophecy regarding this booth, regarding that this this Feast of Booths will be observed again in the millennium. We'll look at that later on. But that's point number one on your outline. It goes by several different names, in-gathering, dwelling, Feast of Nations, Feast of Sukkot, Feast of Tabernacles, Feast of Booths. All these are different names that might describe it. That's number one on your outline. Number two on your outline is this. It is designed to be joyful. That's the design of this. It's to be a joyful celebration. Since you're still in Deuteronomy 16, I want you to look in verse 14 and 15. It says in verse 14, you shall what in this feast? Rejoice in your feast, right? Rejoice. It says in verse fifteen at the very end, and in all the work of your hands, so that you be together what joyful. So it's supposed to be a time of joy. It's supposed to be a time of celebration. In verse, uh, if you were to look over, uh, flip over to Leviticus chapter twenty three. It's a time of celebration in Leviticus twenty three verse thirty nine. It says on the fifteenth day of the seventh month. When you've gathered in the produce of the land, you shall celebrate the feast of the Lord seven days. Celebrate the feast. It says in verse 41 the same thing, that you should celebrate. It says in verse 40 that you shall rejoice in verse 40 of Leviticus 23. For for the Lord your God seven days. So this was a feast that was all about rejoicing, joy, thanksgiving. In fact, it said that Thanksgiving, the first Thanksgiving that the pilgrims did, it was actually an observance of Sukkot, and that this is the actually the modern Thanksgiving holiday we have is actually finds its descent in observing this by the early pilgrims. Now, here's the deal. These fall feasts pointed towards the Lord's return, something he would finally that he would fulfill ultimately. We had the Feast of Trumpets announcing the, the trumpet of God that the Lord's returned. We have the Day of Atonement, which is where sin gets dealt with. These were heavy feasts, okay? Heavy. The Day of Atonement was five days ago. And now comes this feast. So it was a joyful one. It was joyful. It was joyful, for one, is that the harvest, they this was their final harvest. They enjoyed the bounty, and they were going to enjoy it for seven days, all the hard work. So it was a time to rejoice at what the Lord had provided. It was a time of thanksgiving, thanksgiving. And so it was joyful in that respect. It was joyful in the fact that the Day of Atonement had happened. The high priest had walked out. The scapegoat had been had went to the wilderness and did not come back. Their sins were forgiven. So it was a time to rejoice in the Lord. So it was a, a joyful time for them. And they were to, if you look in chapter sixteen, verse forty, they had some elements that were they were to use. Now, the interesting thing is, the word of God doesn't tell them how they're supposed to use these four elements. But these four elements were part of the joyful celebration. It says in verse forty of Leviticus twenty-three, "You shall take on the first day the fruit of a splendid tree." You're gonna see Ben yeoman out there. It has something that looks like a a, a a big lemon. Okay, that's the that's the typical fruit. Thing that the rabbis designed that uh, had said that you should use a branch of palm trees leafy trees and willows of the brook and these are it says and you shall rejoice before your your god seven days so somehow you were to the word of god doesn't give us the exact directions on how are you to use these four elements these branches and this piece of fruit to to rejoice before the lord so the rabbis wrote a really kind of way that you can do this and when we leave here and go out to this booth Ben Yeoman's going to give us an example of of how you use those four elements in a way of rejoicing. So ultimately, this is a time of rejoicing. And what's interesting, I mean, listen, if I get off, I mean, here's why, man, sometimes I wish I was just Jewish in the fact that, like, I could get off work some this month, right? I mean, like, the first day you're off work, the eighth day you're off work. I mean, how awesome is this? Seven days, you're at a party for seven days? I mean, how awesome is that, that, you kinda of move out, of course they didn't have air conditioning, but in our modern world, I love the idea if it's like, hey, no one hangs out in the air conditioning. Everybody comes out into the front yard or the backyard and everybody has a tent and everybody's kinda of just mixing and mingling in the neighborhood and we're just kind of going from house to house and everybody's invited to come in your tent. It's kinda of like an it's kinda of like open season to be joyful and celebrate. I love it. So it was something that was looked forward to. It was something that denoted joyfulness. Joyfulness. File that back in your memory bank, and we'll come back to that here in a little bit. Number three. Are everybody with me on number three? So we've given you two things to know about the Feast of Booth, this Feast of Tabernacles. It goes by several different names. It was designed to be joyful. It was a joyful time. It was a joyful celebration. Just a side note. God loves a good party. God loves a good party that is thankful towards him. Not a party. God doesn't like the party that's like selfish and self-seeking and sinful. But he likes a party that's about thanking him. What do you think would happen in our life if we took seven days to be thankful for the Lord? What would you? What would happen if you were to take a dry erase marker and for every day this week during the Feast of Booths, you were to be thankful to the Lord for something? How might that change our disposition towards the Lord? How might it change even how we treat other people? It was a joyful celebration that you were... I, I, notice this. The Day of Atonement. How many days was that? How many days was the Feast of Trumpets? One, although the rabbis kind of made it two. So, isn't this like our life sometimes that that what we like to do is maybe have one day of rejoicing and seven days of negativity, right? But God's kind of like, man, that's not how it's meant to be. Like you cannot. I mean. If, if you've ever had like seven days of negativity in a row, no wonder you'll feel depressed, right? Like so the Lord's like, hey, you're not meant to have it that long. So yes, there's gotta be a time for mourning, but then hey man, there's time for rejoicing here. And so he gives them this feast for the whole entire week. Number three, it was designed to be celebrated in community. Leviticus twenty three, thirty-five, he said you're to have a holy convocation. That means everybody gathers and worships the Lord. They were to rest on the first and eighth day. They were to be in these booths and they were to live in these booths, but it was a it was a way that they could actually visit booth to booth. they could share. Look in Deuteronomy 16 even if, I mean love like no one was left out of the party in Deuteronomy 16 in verse 14. it says, "And you shall rejoice in your feast, you and your sons and your daughter and your male servant, and your female servant, the Levite, the sojourner, the fatherless, the widow, Like, everybody got invited to this. Everybody got an invite to your booth. Everybody could go around. What a, what a community driving kind of event. I often get jealous and wonder. Not that I want to impress in some kind of legalistic standard that we should do these kind of things, because it's ultimately the shadow it's pointing towards is Christ. I just wonder sometimes, would our communities be different if we had some rhythm where we just said, hey, Like, we're going to get together for seven days and just rejoice with each other. I mean, I don't know. I mean, I just wonder sometimes what would it do for our soul? Like, the community of how everybody's invited to this. No one's left out of the party. What a great pointing towards what the Lord's trying to do. Like, he's trying to bring in the nations. Like, everybody's getting invited to this party. It's not just Jews, it's Gentiles. And we'll look at that from Zechariah 14. A lot of people say, like, I can worship God and I can worship God alone. Well, all the way through the Old Testament with Israel, feasts weren't done alone, okay? The only person that did anything alone was on the Day of Atonement, and that was the high priest because he points us towards Jesus, the high priest who is the only one that could go alone before the Holy of Holies and buy our redemption. So number four, it was, this is number four now, it was designed to last days. Not just one day, seven days. Seven days. I actually kind of covered number four and number three. Go figure, I got ahead of myself. Number five, it was meant to be a reminder of God's care for his people. A reminder of God's care for his people. Look over at Leviticus chapter 23 again. In Leviticus 23, it says in verse 42, You shall dwell in booths for seven days. All native Israelites shall dwell in booths. Tents. And your generation shall know that I made the people of Israel dwell in booths when I brought them out of the land of Egypt. I am the Lord your God. So it was a reminder of God's care for his people. Now, at this point, people go like, wait, 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 wait. I thought they wandered around in the wilderness for 40 years because they sinned, didn't believe God, and go into the promised land. So God was killing off all that generation except for two, Caleb and Joshua. And that's why they were wandering around in booths. You are correct. But during that 40 years, God miraculously took care of them. They had a pillar of cloud by day to shade them, a pillar of fire by night to guide them. They had manna from heaven. They had God's click list, right? I mean, like, how awesome is that? And so when this feast comes in, it's saying to them, like, I want you to remember that even in the worst of your sin, God still took care of you. Even when you're faithless, he's faithful, right? So I love that it's a reminder that God has cared for his people. He has taken care of them. He took care of them. Although because of their sin they wandered in the wilderness forty years. God took care of them. God sustained them. Just so you know, millions of people don't go out into a desert and typically live through that with no resources, right? It just it tends not to happen very easy. Only by God's miraculous hand what kind of reminder would happen in our soul if for seven days we were to remind ourselves of all the ways God has taken care of us? Aside from Thanksgiving, what if we were to take a dry erase marker and on our mirror have another list, not only of Thanksgiving, but naming out all the ways we have seen God take care of us in the past. You know, sometimes when we don't believe that God will take care of us in the future, it's because we're not remembering how he's taken care of us in the past. So this feast, helps to point this out to them, that God cares for you. He's taking care of you in the past. He's going to take care of you again, all by His hand. So it's a good day. No wonder it's a rejoicing time. It's a time to look forward to. I feel kind of jealous that we don't do this, to be all honest with you, all right? I'm taking off tomorrow, okay? I'm taking off, you know, on the eighth day. Don't worry. It'll, I think it'll be next Monday, so I'll still be here to preach. Number six. Now we're going to get kind of in the details, Okay? Are y'all okay with the details? I'm gonna say something controversial. I'm not gonna hang on this like it's core doctrine, but I think I, th- I think there's something there. Number six, it marks the birth date of Jesus. Are going go like what? I thought, wait, like don't you mess with my Christmas, Jesus? All right, like that. There may be evidence that maybe this is the time that Jesus was born. I'll I'll kind of. Try to do this the best I can without trying to get too caught up in the weeds here. Okay, do this. Look in Luke chapter 1. We'll probably spend some time on this. But just to. Now, I don't know for sure. But I'm going to show you some of the evidence that would point that maybe this was also the time. There's too many circumstantial things happening. This could mark the birth date of Jesus. All right, y'all still with me? Right. This Feast of Booths, great celebration in Israel, still done today. Chapter 1, verse 5. To, know, to, to have an idea about the birth date of Jesus, you have to really track back to, um, to Zechariah, who was the father of John the Baptist. Because basically what we're told in Luke is that Jesus, the announcement that, that Mary would conceive happened at the sixth month of of Elizabeth being pregnant with John the Baptist. So if we can kind of get an idea where John the Baptist was conceived, we can realistically track that to where Jesus was born. Is everybody with me? So what you first look at is, look over here in verse 5 of Luke 1. In the days of Herod, king of Judea, there was a priest named Zechariah of the, the division of Abijah. Now if you look over in chronicles, Abijah is one of the priestly divisions and it outlines in chronicles how these when these priests uh, all these priestly divisions and in Jewish writings, there is a design of when these different divisions priestly divisions were to work. Now to cut through all the red tape here, let me just basically say this. if we're interpreting looking at rightly, Zechariah, was serving in this context and at this time his the division of Abijah would have happened about mid June. Okay, that's that's where. Now if you want to like how do you come to that? Like let's sit down and it's it's you know it's 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 a great reason to fall asleep, right? But if you're if you're looking at how it was designed and, and how the order happened, the division of Abijah would have happened uh, according to Jewish writing, it would have happened around mid-June. Now Look at this. And he had a wife from the daughters of Aaron, and her name was Elizabeth. And they were both righteous before God, walking blamelessly in all the commandments and statutes of the Lord. But they had no child because Elizabeth was barren, and both were advanced in years. Now, while he was serving as priest before God, when his what? Division was on duty. So his division, the division of Abijah, would have had to have been on duty. That They would have been on duty in mid-June sometime. And, rejo- and many will rejoice at his birth. Okay, is everybody with me so far? Now go down to verse 18. And Zacharias said to the angel, How shall I know this? For I'm an old man, and my wife is advanced in years. That's a nice way of saying that your wife is old. And the angel answered him, I am Gabriel, I stand in the presence of God, and I speak, and I was sent to speak to you and bring this good news to you. Verse 22. And when he came out of the temple... He was unable to speak to them. They realized that he had seen a vision in the temple, and he kept making signs to them and remained mute. So he couldn't speak. And when his time of service ended, he went to his home. Most would say that would be about three weeks later, so we're kind of getting out to the end of June. So he goes home, verse 24. And after these days, his wife Elizabeth conceived, and for five months she kept herself hidden. So can't say the exact date, but we're basically dealing with, more than likely, he goes home, Elizabeth, miraculously, they have union, and she is pregnant somewhere. We're looking maybe in, like, July, okay? Now, keep looking in verse 26. In the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent from God to the city of Galilee named Nazareth, right? To a virgin, betrothed to a man whose name was Joseph, of the house of David. okay. The sixth month is when the angel Gabriel comes to Mary. Okay? Look at verse 28. And he came to her and said, Greetings, O favored one, the Lord is with you. But she was greatly troubled at the same and tried to discern what sort of greeting this might be. The angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you will call his name Jesus. Okay? Now bump down in verse 25. And the angel answered her and said, Actually, verse 34. And Mary said to the angel, how will this be since I am a virgin? How am I going to have a baby? I'm a virgin. Like we're, we're betrothed but we're not married yet. And the angel answered her in verse 35. The Holy Spirit will come upon you and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore the child be born will be called Holy the Son of God. And behold your relative Elizabeth in her old age has also conceived a son and this is the sixth month with her that is called barren. Okay. So Elizabeth is six months pregnant. Okay, everybody with me? More than likely, if we're taking the division of Abijah and when they would have served and what time that would have happened according to the pilgrim feast, they would have it would have been mid June. More than likely, then Elizabeth and Zachariah are getting pregnant somewhere in July. Let's go six months from that. July, August, September, October, November. Where are we at? December. So Hypothetically, I mean, is it possible that that's when actually the conception of Jesus happened? Yeah. Let me throw another little wrench into you. Does anybody think, know what happens in December on the Jewish calendar? Hanukkah. Okay? The festival of lights. Conceivably, could that have been when Jesus was conceived? I don't have any proof of it, but I'm just saying... If you notice, it seems like God does a lot of things around these feasts, right? When you look even like at the spring feasts, the Passover, and if you understand like even the Pentecost, I mean like it matches these Jewish feasts. It's conceivable that it might have actually been during Hanukkah that this happened. The fact that that's even called the Festival of Lights. And what is Jesus? He's the light. Okay. So then, just fun, we don't know, but at the Seder meal, what do Jewish families do at the Seder meal? What do they leave? who Who is a spot left for? Elijah, All right, John the Baptist is paralleled with Elijah. If she was at month six in December, then when conceivably nine months would have ended up where would John the Baptist possibly have been born? Passover. That's just free. Now, let's track this. If we're starting from when the middle of June, when Zachariah receives this, we're now six months later, possibly at Hanukkah. Take nine months from that, all right? January, February, March, April, May, June, July, August, what? September. What do we have? This month, the fall feasts, what do we have? Potentially... The Feast of Booths. Interesting. You did what on the first day? Rested. What did you do on the eighth day? Jesus is our what? He's our rest. Now, I'm not saying that's, uh, don't worry, like, I know exactly the date, and we're going to tear it off the Christmas calendar, and forget it, kids. I'm not saying that. But I'm saying it's awfully suspicious, isn't it? Jesus was circumcised on the eighth day. Why would God have Israel do that? I mean, like, some things are matching up here. It's conceivable that Jesus actually was born on the start of Feast of Booths. And, and one other thing that kind of leans in there, if you look in Luke chapter 1, uh, I'm sorry, Luke chapter 2, look at when he makes the, the birth of the announcement of Jesus to the shepherds. In that same region there were shepherds out in the field keeping watch over the flock by night. And an angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone round about them, and they were filled with great fear. And the angel said to them, "Fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of great what." Now it shouldn't have been anything uncommon that was happening, because if that was the Feast of Booths and that was a joyful celebration, doesn't it seem like no coincidence that we're talking about joy, and here's the here's I mean here's the shepherds out in the field. Now I can't say for sure this is I mean don't. Don't sit there and, like, rip it off the calendar. But I will say some things seem way too suspicious. Even the fact of this, Jesus in John 1, 14, it says the word Jesus was made flesh and what? Dwelt among us. That word dwelt is tabernacled. All right? Coincidence? Boy, it seems like. That's just a lot of circumstantial evidence to point to some things. So, wh- why am I telling you this? Because, boy, what a what a joyful time this could be if you just were to think to yourself, like, "Man, like, 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 how better to celebrate for seven days than to think about the like the Lord has come in, like, to think about like, man, this could have been the time that the Lord actually came into this earth, like, our redemption came." And then you might be thinking, "Like, great, we're gonna tear off." we're going to tear off. I didn't want to buy Christmas presents anyways. Like, I was I was done with Black Friday anyways. Great. We're tearing it off. Well, guess what you can probably celebrate in that time? The conception of Jesus. If it's just like something you still want to have, you've got Hanukkah during that time. But it's conceivably maybe a time that Jesus, this is just things to know, it marks the birth date of Jesus. I should have put in there, potentially. But isn't that cool how God kind of works? There's no coincidence. God appoints things. Nothing's Haphazard. God designed these feasts all the way back with Moses, coming off the Mount of Sinai for a reason, and all these things were leading to Jesus. He is the shadow of it. But not only that, Jesus used the feast to even point to himself. Now do this. Take the book of John. Are y'all still with me? Did y'all did y'all already blank out? John chapter seven. Okay. John chapter 7 through John chapter 9, we're going to look at the time frame of this is the Feast of Booths, okay? So get this, the feast of Booths are going on during this time, all right? Let's look at some things that Jesus does. No coincidence how he uses this. First, if you look at chapter 7, verse 14 of John, it says, In the middle of the feast, Jesus went up into the temple and he began teaching. Just so you know. This feast was done when it was done at the temple. There was a lot of people gathered around. There was a lot of things going on. And so Jesus is already up in the midst of this thing, teaching. And if you read the passages through chapter 7, I mean, people are getting hot about the things they're saying, but at the same time, he's saying such wonderful, marvelous things. Even the religious elite, I mean, the, the temple guards just aren't sure they can really, I mean, they're stunned at the wisdom that he has. Now I'll go to chapter 7, verse 37. It now kind of skips us to the very last day, the seventh day of the feast. It says this, On the last day of the feast, the great day, Jesus stood up. Now a couple things I want you to know. It's not in your scriptures, but historically this is true. There's two things that the Jews did on this on, during this feast that were kind of added stuff. It's not uncommon in, in, in Jewish religion that the rabbis would take things and add application to it. It, it, it They get real wonky with it many times, but there's two things in particular that they would do during this feast time they would go and get water from the pool of siloam and they get water from that pool of siloam take it to the altar and pour it as a drink offering in that altar during that time symbolizing that when the messiah comes the holy spirit's coming also they're hoping to have a good rain over the winter for their next spring harvest right everybody got that so a lot of waters being taken out of the pool of siloam taken to the temple poured in there everybody knows about it A lot of water is going on here. Everybody got it? You got it? Now watch what happens. Jesus, publicly, okay, already in the middle of the week, he was up at the temple teaching. I'm not sure exactly where he was, but he's somewhere in the temple vicinity that I can can tell when I look over at the end of chapter 8. On the last day of the feast, the great day, Jesus stood up. Now, where's he at when he does this? The temple, okay? He stood up and he softly whispered. No, it says he cried out with a loud voice and watch what he says. Remember, they're pouring all this water from the pool of Siloam and the brazen altar, drink offering. He says, if anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Get that? You know what he just said? You know what he just said? He said like, I am that living water. What you're doing every day, guess what? That's me. Now, I don't know if you understand what it's like to do this at the temple while, like, worship and praise is going on, and Jesus is like, hold the phone, guys. This is a mic drop moment. Who believes in me? As the scripture has said, out of his heart shall flow rivers of living water. Now, he said this about the Spirit, whom those who believed in him were to receive, for as yet the Spirit had not been given, because Jesus was not yet glorified. So he's even telling them, like, the Holy Spirit's going to come. Do you understand this? So, like... Even historically, when this is happening, when you're reading this text, this is happening on that last day, like the final day, the big day. Not only that, but there's something else that they did. They had this, this is historically true. They got these four big pillars. Okay? These candle, these these candles, all right? These candle labras kind of thing. And they were huge. They're about 75 foot high, is what we're told. And the priests, you know, they used the youngest priests, right? They would have to climb up these and put the wick, which is usually it was like old garments from the priesthood, and about seven gallons of olive oil. And they would like these huge, huge 75-foot menorahs, right? Just huge. And it would give light to all around. It was a huge celebration. In fact, it said in Jewish tradition, like if you've never been in Jerusalem during the Feast of Booths and saw these lights and saw the dancing and saw the celebration, like you haven't lived. Okay, so here we go. These things are being lit every night. A lot of light, right? I mean, Jerusalem's high up. It's shining out all around. Everybody's celebrating, right? Now watch what he does in chapter 8. Again, Jesus spoke to them saying, remember, where's he at in this? The temple. I am the light of the world. Whosoever follows me will not walk in darkness, will have the light of life see what verse 13 the pharisees also said you are bearing witness about yourself your testimony is not true what happened all these lights are going on in jesus you know what jesus is saying guys guess what i told you i was the water guess what else i am i'm the light you see that light that i'm actually the light i don't even know this is the reason why they got really upset with him right what's interesting is this um go over to chapter nine of john and you see the man born blind now there's a discrepancy it's debatable, I don't know if I'm going to go into it because, you know I don't want to confuse things but it's debatable whether chapter 9 of John is on that 7th day still, or that final 8th day Okay, on that 8th day you didn't live in the booth anymore, but you took off work it was a solemn assembly, you still came together I'm not, I've if you're really interested in like like the difference between the two and what people say, we can have another conversation that might put you to sleep. It was, so it's either the seventh or the eighth day, um, but he's still at the temple. It's still during the Feast of Booths, and watch what happens. So remember, Jesus already said, you see that water? I'm that water. You see these four lights? I'm that light. Which, by the way, those lights represented the four corners of the earth. Represented that like the God like like the good news of who Yahweh was was supposed to make it out to the nations. That's why they put it on 75 foot high so it could shine out past Jerusalem to the nations, which in the end that's what Jesus is. He's the light to the nations. It's so funny how they had things that, you know, was all a part of God's sovereign plan. Nonetheless, watch what happens here. And as he passed by, this is John chapter 9. Okay. Are y'all with me still? John chapter 9. And as he passed by, he saw blind men from birth. Still, we're either at the seventh or eighth day of the Feast of Booth. And his disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? Jesus answered, it was not that this man sinned or his parents, but the works of God might be displayed in him. We must work the works of him who sent me while his day, night is coming when no one can work. And having, and as long as I am in the world, he says what? I am the light of the world. So what does he do? He heals this guy. Just so you understand, when you read the rest of chapter 9, the Jews didn't like this, okay? They were pretty caught up about this. It was a huge storm. So, But I love this. He'd already said, I'm the living water and I'm the light. Then he comes in and he says to this guy, I'm the light of the world. Then having said this, he spit on the ground, made mud from the saliva. And when he anointed this man's eyes with mud, he said to him, go wash in the pool of what? Any coincidence? that's where they were taking water out to bring to the temple for the drink offering, right? Remember when he said, like, I'm that living water, right? No coincidence that he comes in and he says, just so you guys know, in case there's no mistaking it, I am the light and I am the water. In fact, I'm going to heal this guy just to show you that I am the light and I am the living water. Make no mistake about it, right? So Jesus, number seven on your outline, he used the Feast of Booths to point to himself. Now do this. Look at Matthew chapter 17. But not only that. So the next time you read John 7 through 9, I man, you just see the background of what's going on. I mean, this was intense. And there's so many, I don't have time. There's so many other things that were going on. Now, y'all remember the Mount of Transfiguration? You know what I'm talking about? Where Peter, James, and John, and they get a chance to see the glorified, the glory of God and Jesus is talking to Moses and Elijah. Do you remember ever kind of like, what was that all about? Like Peter sees it and he's like, let us build three tents for you. You ever read that? Like man, Peter, you're always just talking like, shut up. Like what is the deal with the whole tent thing? Like why are you even talking about that? Now, I can't find any evidence that this is happening during a feast of tabernacles, okay? I'm not saying that. But I'm saying this, there's something eternal that they realize that's why they they say something about it. So like, for instance, you see in chapter 17, and we'll look in verse 2. Jesus was transfigured before them. Actually, we'll in verse 1. After six days, Jesus took with him Peter John, his brother, and led them up to a high mountain by themselves. He was transfigured before them. His face shone like the sun. His clothes became white as light. And behold, there appeared to them Moses and Elijah talking with him i mean eternity was breaking in on 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 earthly existence outside of time and time peter said to jesus lord it is good that we are here if you wish we will make three what tents booths here one for you one for moses one for elijah and while he was still speaking when behold a bright cloud overshadowed them and a voice from the cloud said is my beloved son whom i will please listen to him The disciples heard this. They filled their faces and were terrified. Jesus touched them and said, Arise, have no fear. Now, here's the deal. Why would Peter say such a thing? Well, it's because it leads us to our eighth point point here, is that the Feast of Booth is meant to point us to the return of his kingdom. So what happened is, when Peter saw that, he saw eternity. Which is just a side note. People say, Will I recognize my loved ones in eternity? Will I recognize? Well, Peter never met Moses or Elijah, but for some reason, they seem to recognize who they are. Don't know, just saying, nonetheless, here's what we got here. Peter sees this. He sees eternity on on planet Earth. And you know what he thinks? It's it! Here we go! He's thinking about Zechariah 14 that talks about when the kingdom comes, there's going to be booths. So he's just kind of like, hey... It's it. The kingdom's here. Like, man, let's, let's commemorate this thing. Like, this is what the Lord said when His kingdom. Like, we're still going to be in booths, and the nation's going to be coming. Like, let's put up a tent. Let's do this. There was a reason why he said that. I mean, if you got to see the glory of God while you were still finite man, you'd have no other thought but to think glory's come. Now, it didn't yet, although he got a picture of it. So number eight, it's meant to point us to Christ. Who will dwell with us? In his return to set up his kingdom. Do this. Look over at Zechariah chapter 14. Zechariah chapter 14. It's like right at the end of your Old Testament. In Zechariah 14, it says this. Go to Zechariah 14 and verse 16. Then everyone who survives of all the nations. Now, most people would, you know, I'm not going to get into a big end time kind of thing here. Some people are are, are strong proponents of a literal thousand year millennium. We've got some in our church that come from a background that's more amillennial to think it's symbolic. That's not my, my deal right here to talk about that. But those who would be strongly in favor of millennium, literal millennium, here's the belief that verse 16, that everyone who survives of all the nations that have come against Jerusalem shall go up year after year to worship the king. Now, if you read in chapter 14, the other 13, 15 verses, you really, it really looks like the the battle of Armageddon. It looks like the Lord has returned, and it's a, it's a big setup for the millennial kingdom. And it looks like what happens is Everyone who survives of all the nations that come against Jerusalem shall go up year after year to worship the King, the Lord of hosts, and to keep the Feast of Booths. So it looks like in the millennial kingdom that was, Jesus is ruling and reigning, fulfilling the Davidic promises from Jerusalem, that the Feast of Booths is going to happen in the millennium. It says, And if any of the families of the earth do not go up to Jerusalem to worship the King, the Lord of hosts, there will be no rain on them. So it doesn't look like this is some of the eternal thing, like people are still depending on rain and in the environment of the earth. But many would look at this and point and go, this, what what Peter was thinking was this, was Zechariah 14 was thinking that this is what's going to happen when the kingdom, when the Messiah sets up his kingdom, we're still going to be, we're going to be doing the Feast of booth still. He was recognizing that. Now, whether you think that that, Is a millennial kingdom, or you think that's symbolic in the end, or if you're just a pantheist, where you just think it's all going to pan out. Here's what I will tell you. Whether there's a literal feast of booth that's going to happen in the millennial kingdom, in the end, that feast of booth is pointing us to the ultimate booth, who is Jesus, right? So I personally am a millennial guy. I think there's still going to be a literal, physical millennium that God's going to fulfill those Davidic promises, and it's going to lead us into the new heaven and new earth. But I can say this, if you turn your Bible over to Revelation, just so you know, that's the very last book. A lot easier to find. But when Peter sees this, he realizes in the end, we're going to be making booths because basically the booth, God's sukkah, God's tabernacle, God's tent. When it's all said and done, when we... When we go out and leave here in a minute and walk out there and and Ben Yeoman does some celebration with us and and shows our kids some things and we're rejoicing before the Lord, this is what we're pointing to ultimately. We're pointing towards this feast of booth during the millennium. I mean, like the joy, but then ultimately it's pointing us towards eternity. Verse 3, I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, oh, I'm sorry, Revelation 21 verse 3. Can just guess 22 chapters verse 3 so if you're a strong millennialist you believe that you've been um i believe that we'll be uh, there observing the feast of booths. this will be something done during that millennial earthly millennial kingdom of jesus fulfilling those davidic promises and then ultimately the new heaven new earth come down and it says this Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them. He will be his people. And God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. Death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain, for the former things have passed away. Catching the totality of Scripture and catching the point of the Feast of Booths, it's not a time to sulk. It's a time to have joy. Why is that? because the Feast of Booth points us to eternity ultimately, when we will be with God's Booth. God will be tabernacling among us, and there will be no pain, no crying, no nothing, nothing but joy. You see that? You get that? I mean, that's what the Feast of Booth was meant to point our hearts towards ultimately. So, how can we honor this thing. Well, I can tell you this. man. take a sheet of paper, get a dry erase marker. I mean, each day this week, like, write something you're thankful for. Write some way God has taken care of you. And write something about looking forward to be with Him, our ultimate feast of booth, right? And like, see what the Lord does when you have a full week of just not focusing on the negative, but focusing on the positive, focusing on Him. Like, watch what attitude of gratitude happens would you stand with me? We're going to sing to the Lord, and then I'm going to dismiss us to walk outside, and then Yeoman's going to help us to get a visual appreciation of this start of what a booth is and, and what this looks to, to be joyful before the Lord, especially with these four elements. The, they call it the blue love. Lord, would you let... This is so hard to preach these kind of things. I don't even know if this makes sense to anybody. but I'm thankful for you. Thank you that you have died in my place. You've taken my sins. That you have done for me what I can't do for myself. My sins deserve judgment. My sins deserve hell. My sins deserve your wrath. And you live perfectly. You completely satisfied God's law of perfection so that you could die for me, someone who's not perfect. Thank you for mm-hmm. suffering. God's judgment. My play. Thank you. There's been a glorious exchange. My unrighteousness, my sinfulness, for your righteousness, your sinlessness. Thank you that this Bible is not some haphazard thing that was just written in peace together. You, from years ago, have been telling a story through Israel that would lead a pathway to the cross of Jesus and would lead a pathway to glory. I praise you for it. Never could anything like this be There's way too much circumstantial stuff that's going on here. Let us praise you.